The O3C Podcast is a proud member of the HyperX Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the O3C Podcast, coming to you from O3C Games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by Chris Dow. Among the fields of barley. And Minty Booth. Hello. And, well, well, yes, hello, and uh, we're here to talk about uh, video games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we dive into the episode, we just want to update you on our ongoing competition prize draw that we're running. If you've not heard the last couple of episodes, we are rewarding people for sharing articles from our website on social media, I believe it's called. So the way to enter the competition is as follows. Go to our website, o3c.games, and have a browse of our amazing articles on there. You'll find reviews, thoughts, opinions, and all sorts of video games musings. There there are some, some poignant pieces reflecting on lockdown gaming, mad coverage of gaming oddities, and Minty's pairings of beer with video games. There are some great reads on there. Then you need to share one of the articles on Twitter and tag a friend in the post and us in the post. We are at O3C Games. And if you and your friend that you tag both then follow the O3C Games profile, you will both become eligible for the prize draw. And there is no limit on how many times you can share articles, nor a limit on how many friends you tag. Uh, But each friend you successfully get to follow the O3C Games profile will count as an extra entry for yourself. We'll be running this competition for another couple of weeks, so there's plenty of time to get your entries in. And uh, what shall you win, I hear you ask? Bloody games. It is only bloody games. What we've done is we've put together a personally plucked bundle of digital games on Steam. 11 games, a delightful swathe of indie games, including several games we've given coverage to on our podcast, like The Texasist and Desert Child. And because 11 games isn't a round chicken's dozen of an amount, we are giving you the honour of choosing the 12th game in the bundle. And the choices are between three games that we can definitely vouch for because it is our number one games from our countdowns. That's right, you can complete your bundle with either Half-Life 2, Res Infinite or Tales of Symphonia. We are absolutely thrilled to be giving these games away and hope that they bring you as much enjoyment as they have us. So get reading, get sharing, get tagging and then get gaming. It's time to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. The stunning HyperX Quadcast S features dynamic, customizable RGB lighting, a convenient tap-to-mute sensor, and four selectable polar patterns, so it can broadcast crystal clear audio, whether you're gaming, streaming, podcasting, or impressing your remote colleagues and classmates. So what are you waiting for? Join the Quad Squad and tap in today with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. We three are gathered here today to talk about video games. Uh, what video games? I don't know why I'm doing these uh, questions and then answering them. Um, <laughs> probably a symptom that I've been spending too long on my own. Uh, how are you doing today? All right, thanks. Keep going. I believe in you. Thanks. <laughs> we are going to pluck another game out of our recent playing history to crowbar into our top 100 favourite video games of all time lists. I mean, this is we're only seven episodes in. Uh, we've we've got another like thirteen or fourteen games, depending on how that maths works, uh, to crowbar in uh, some incredible games to come. But but how are we going to make room?
come for them. Oh, it's maddening. Maddening, I tell you. Before we dive into those amendments, though, uh, let's chat a little bit about what we've been playing in the last week. And we're going to kick off with Minty. And I have a, a, a hunch that you and I have been playing something of the similarnessnesses. Well, yeah, we have, haven't we? Because um, much like everybody else on planet Earth, uh, we're playing Pokemon Legends Arceus, aren't we? Yes, we are. Are we? Yeah, it's great. It's great so far. The mainline Pokemon games have, have unfortunately left many people wanting as of late. And all the things that I wanted, all the things I didn't even know that I wanted, they just seem to be here in this game. Mm. So the, the premise of the game is that you are in uh, the, what is it, the Hisui region? Hisui region. Hisui region. It's, it's a long time ago. It's so long ago, in fact, that you are creating the very first Pokedex. And obviously, uh, because it's a Pokemon game, you are a kid. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which, again, gives some credence to the idea that uh, all, everything in the Pokedex was written by a kid. <laughs> uh, horses with hooves ten times harder than diamonds. <laughs> sure it is, yeah. Yeah, and Alexam has an IQ of a billion. Yeah. This turtle can burn hotter than the sun. It's, it's, it's ridiculous, but we're getting an origin story for it, and it's great. But... <laughs> It's not just a case of like catching a Pokemon and seeing what uh, and and seeing its Pokedex entry is because there is no Pokedex entry because there is no Pokedex. You are the one creating the Pokedex. So for every Pokemon you catch and every behavior you see it doing, that adds a little bit of a a little tick onto your research tasks page, which then fills out more and more of the Pokedex. It's added a new level of discovery and wonder to catching Pokemon that I've not really felt since, well, yeah, since Pokemon Silver, since before I had the internet and everything got spoiled for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I mentioned in the Discord that I've, I've had a couple of things spoiled for me, but nothing too major, actually, and... To be honest, the things that I have had spoiled, I've forgotten because I'm just wrapped up in this really nice, involving adventure. I haven't found a regional form just yet, but I do have a Scyther. Oh, yeah. Which I've got no idea how to turn it into the uh, the new Scyther Evolution Cleavor, who has the axes. Mm. But yeah, it's great. It, it, it plays nicely. There's fuck tons of side quests, which I love and have had most of my time taken up with i don't know how far along in the story i, I am but i've done oh I've, I've helped out a load of people gathering them wheat or showing them as a bat all that sort of thing just the silly <laughs> little things that uh, distract you on your on your grand adventure i've just done a side task where i had to go and hunt down some bidoof yes who had invaded the village and go and find them which i must say the draw distance in this game made that challenge quite tricky yeah yeah i'll say this it's lucky for this game that The Witcher 3 lowered the bar so thoroughly when it came to draw distance. <laughs> I think it's it's the general consensus that the the ambition and the vision of this game just isn't quite matched by the hardware of the Switch. But that is the only downside. And it's better that it's that way around than uh, the, the, the hardware far outstripping the vision of the game i think absolutely yes i love the gameplay loop um i i like you said it feels like you're discovering and exploring and it feels 
Oh, it's just yeah, it's just got a really good sense of of of, uh, of adventure to it. Adventure, it's the word. Like people have said, oh, the games, you know, it's a lot harder than uh, sort of normal mainline Pokemon games, but that's kind of in your own hands because you can return to a, like a base camp whenever you want to recover. Yeah. But just that that sense of exploration, you just want to go a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further, see what's around there. Oh, what's that? That that rock is is shining. Let's see what happens if I if I smash that open, or you know, oh maybe maybe there's something over there or oh the uh the time of day is changing so you know i wonder what's going to appear now you know you don't want to just go back and, and go back so yeah I've, I've you know i haven't fainted yet but i've been caught short a few times and uh and had to had to zip zip on back to uh to a base camp it's just got that lovely lovely sense of of adventure it is 100 percent the uh format that i want pokemon to continue with going forward i just want to explore i just want to explore i want to do side quests uh i want to i want to i want to just catch loads of pokemon i want to fill out my pokedex i want to know more about the uh, the overall story i like the fact that there are there are seeds of you know of uh of, of, of what you know are going to become established parts of of this world and this this particular region of the world and if you've played you know diamond and pearl I mean, it doesn't quite match the the thrill of the hunt vibe that you get with something like Monster Hunter Rise, and it doesn't quite match, you know, that open world wilderness majesty of Breath of the Wild, but it's Pokemon. Having hints of those things fused with Pokemon is is very exciting. Oh, I tell you, I tell you one thing. Yeah. I've never been that fussed with shiny Pokemon. Yeah. There has only ever been one shiny Pokemon that I wanted to get, and that is a shiny Ponyta or a shiny Rapidash because yes. it had a indigo, mm-hmm. indigo flame mane. And I spent, I don't know, <laughs> dozens of hours on Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu getting a shiny Ponytar. Yeah. This game has a side quest that basically guarantees you a shiny Ponytar. Yeah. <laughs> but there we go. I'm really excited that the game's here and uh, I'm excited in the direction it's going. I hope the, the, the sort of the technical limitations do continue to, not really bother me. Not really bother me. Yeah. I had a, a flurry of activity at the start of the week because I wanted to wrap a few things up before Pokemon arrived. So I did manage to finish the main story of Death's Door. Well done. That was great. It's a strange experience with this game because I said last week, I think, that for all of the game's incredible strengths, it is really lacking in the originality department. You know, it's got great gameplay, great combat, great design, great writing, great music. It's a great game. It's it's definitely the best game I've ever been nonplussed about. <laughs> Put that on the box. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when I played that game called Ender Lilies? Yes. Which was like a yeah. side-scrolling Souls-like Metro. Good, because I mean, I don't. That was incredibly unoriginal, but also felt quite lazy in its design as well. Like the developers were outwardly copying things they'd seen done before, whereas at least Death's Door uses other games as a leaping off point and an inspiration for their game. Because it, it does feel like it, you know, it's got a clear singular vision in its identity and a very rounded package of a game and it is incredibly successful in that i found out it's just a two-man team from manchester oh wow. there's a couple of other names in the credits but at its core it's you know these two guys one of them wrote all the music as well which is i must say fantastic i mean i enjoyed myself all through the game love the gameplay love the boss battles i love the story there's quite a lot of post-game content in fact and um, loads of additional challenges and areas to explore but I just didn't feel the pull to go and do all of that in the same way that I did with something like Ori in the Blind Forest, where it was all just so fresh and exciting that I wanted to see 
everything the game had to offer me. But I can't not give this game a very high recommendation. Like, it's a solid 9 out of 10 game. It loses a point for lack of originality, but everything else here is just so brilliantly done. It's... Uh, it's I'm so, so conflicted. So conflicted. It's great. It's a brilliant game. So why aren't I happier about that? I don't know. I don't know. Play it. Let me know. But I then decided to have a little look at some of the other games that were sat on my Switch that I needed to try and, you know, tick off before Arceus arrived. So I gave Monomore a quick blast, hey. which is... <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if you've, you've played it, Chris, but it's uh, it's a little score-chasing arcade game from Onion Games, hey. the guys that made Dandy Dungeon. It's a good one. I mean, it's a similarly fucking bizarre as that game. Yeah. Basically, it's built around like a Flappy Bird main gameplay style, and you pick up potential suitors every stage you complete as you fly through the air as this weird little <laughs> man and you get points it's just it's so weird but like i love how much you know this developer owns that identity like like dandy yeah. dungeon was ridiculous as well like even their website if you go to it it's all in comic sans <laughs> like it's 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 really it's just delightfully subversive um, once I sort of sampled that game, I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not, like I've said before, I'm, I have a tricky relationship with the uh, sort of score chasing games because either I'd get totally obsessed. So I was like, oh, you know, I, this game's fun. I, I see what it is. And, um, and then I, I, I put it down. I may well pick it up for some blasts, uh, you know, every now and again, if nothing else, just to show it to somebody who might find it funny. But I, I tried to get back into Tales of Iron, which was that, that lovely hand-drawn Metroidvania sounds like game that I started <laughs> to play, uh, where you play as a rat and it's really, really good. But I put it down because I got sidelined by probably, probably The Binding of Isaac. And I just couldn't quite remember the ins and outs of the combat and the movement systems in the game. So jumping back in, I really struggled to know what I was doing uh, or even, you know, like where I'd got to in the story. I was like a bit too far in to start again because I think I, I might need to start that from the beginning if, if, if I'm, you know, I'm going to return to it. So we'll see. Maybe I'll come back to that. But then, yeah, I was just killing off pre-Pokemon time by diving back into, wait for it. Binding of Isaac. Nope. Oh. Dead Cells! Hey! Ah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's been another piece of DLC released, so I wanted to check that out and also try and get my head around some of the other elements that have been added into the game since I, you know, probably had a good long sesh with it. And it is a game that continues to be one of the most tight and refined gaming experiences you can find. It's still absolutely gorgeous. There's many more biomes and enemies and bosses to discover, which are all just so beautifully realised. The game still has the most incredible atmosphere and tone. There's so much fun to be found in there, especially with some of the recent inclusions. Like, uh, there's an update that crosses over with other games. So now there's like weapons and level features from some other indie metroidvanias like Hollow Knight and Blasphemous, even even Guacamelee. Hey, that's a good game. There's a Guacamelee weapon that turns you turns you into a chicken and uh, and that's great there's also a feature that i found added into the game which i don't know when it was but you can basically go to like a practice arena in the starting area and you can test out any weapons you want any sort of loadout and you can even go and fight any of the bosses just to practice them and this type of allowance is exactly what i was saying last week that i wanted in returnal to help like prep myself for those harder runs and th- i mean there's definite similarity with Returnal and Dead Cells that there isn't like that potential you have with Binding of Isaac that you might stumble or chance upon a weapon or an item that totally transforms your run 
it's very much down to your own skill and knowledge of the weapons and equipment and enemies and bosses and movement patterns that's entirely what will mean if you live or die in a run so it's it's really really nice to see that dead cells has made those concessions to you know really help you get your head around any areas of the game that you want or need to it's yeah it's a brilliant it's a brilliant brilliant game although i did find the switch has been struggling with some of the new biomes that i got to one in particular like quite a lot I, I thought the game was going to crash on me a few times it really it was really really struggled which is a shame but I, I i have also i own it on on playstation as well but i'm I'm quite tempted to start a fresh save file on the <laughs> on the playstation and do some streaming of it just something to do isn't it well you know now that i've put isaac down it probably won't take me long to to catch up to where i've actually got to in terms of what i've unlocked um in dead cells because like my, my skills are, are are almost sort of back to where they were in just this little play session I've had, and uh, yeah, it'd be fun to fun to start a fresh save file and um, oh, it's just a brilliant game, brilliant game. There we go, that's me. Now it's just Pokemon forever, maybe. <laughs> well, definitely for a few weeks until Elden Ring comes out. Um, so yeah, oh, I can't wait for that. But for now, Pokemon. Chris, what have you played? Not Pokemon. Obviously. (laughs) I mean, it's been a a strange mix this week because I am trying to be a little bit more conscious of my spending at the moment, knowing that things like the Steam Deck now has a slightly more concrete order date. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, in anticipation of that being kind of potentially around the end of February, depending on when you got a pre-order in, I've been trying to just stick to what I have (laughs) for a little bit. So I've, I've been digging through stuff I already own. I've been trawling the emulation station or I permitted myself to kind of spend out on sale bits and bobs on digital stores rather than just, you know, popping into shops and just buying full price stuff willy nilly. <laughs> I have been really tempted this last few days to pick up Arceus. Yeah. <laughs> and your your glowing impressions between you two is not helping dull my interest. <laughs> because it, it does sound like a lot of the things that I'd kind of really just had not that much interest in, in kind of the core Pokemon stuff has been addressed at least. Mm. Or, or kind of, you know... Uh, just put into a slightly different context and and made it all feel a bit fresher. But so far, I have managed to hold off, and I know I can be a good boy if I try. <laughs> so don't try. Look forward to me getting into this game in about a year and a half when everyone else is done, everyone else has moved on, and and I decide in like 2023 to say, oh, Arcus is all right, isn't it? And then start talking about how the the environment is really important and elegiac and all those sort of words. It's got a really good sense of place. So starting with stuff I have played that's on the shelf, stuff I already own. You can all sigh a collective groan as I'm still making progress through Hungry Shark World and Frozen Freefall. Wow, good. But <laughs> but I've also been playing a Switch shoot-em-up called Sturmwind, which arrived the other day after I think I ordered it maybe last summer. Wow. It's not a patch on Darius Burst, of course, because that's a, a very, very sort of high-tier experience. But it is notable for being a remake of a previous Dreamcast exclusive that came out long after the console had ceased manufacture. Because the, the Dreamcast still today has a, a big indie development scene uh, with proper like physical releases coming out, you know, a couple times monthly sometimes. But it's nice to see something like Sturmwind get a second life on modern platforms and have a bigger audience to, to check it out and play it. It's a much more European take on the genre compared to something like Darius Burst. So everything is a, is a bit more chaotic and less polished than, than Japanese developed shoot-em-ups tend to be. And I've mentioned this before that it's it's the classic like Turrican versus Contra thing. That it's just very different design sensibilities on either side of the world when these genres were being established. So in Europe we had lots of health but unavoidable enemies uh, that you see in something like Sturmwind. And then in Japan, you had maybe little health, but very well telegraphed obstacles and and well-considered readable bullet patterns in something like Darius. So 
Stonewind is fun. It's not the best shooter, like I said, but it's still a lot of fun when you have the, the chunky arcade stick on your lap and you're you're moving about and blowing stuff up. So it's a good time. In terms of emulation, Here we go. <laughs> readers of the website would have seen that I played through the tie-in game to Disney Pixar Cars on the Game Boy Advance the other day. Yes, you did. And in an article, <laughs> I, I did my best to sum up why I enjoy Tosh like this. But the long and short is that I treat these sorts of games as filler in the same way people might watch junk on TV. And on evenings when George is working, for instance, I'm far more likely to play something like Cars for a couple hours as very low effort, low stakes entertainment than I am to put something passive on the TV. For some reason, even watching something, you know, absolute shit like Married at First Sight or Come Dine With Me, I need to have someone there with me to feel like the experience is validated in some way. It's, it's odd, like... My favourite shows and films, if I don't have someone to watch them with, the likelihood of me putting them on is close to zero. Whereas with games, I can put anything on. Like, I don't feel like I need someone sitting next to me to say, like, yes, you played a game and that's how you spent your time. Whereas for some reason, TV, I, I feel that need. I feel that desire. I have very little to report about the Cars game itself. <laughs> like, it is, is perfectly serviceable for the reason that I've just outlined. You know, it, it plugs a gap for a little bit of time. It keeps your brain ticking over. And, and that's basically it. Tune in next week and I'll probably have played the second one. <laughs> but in terms of sales, uh, I finally added the last few bits of DLC to my Zachariah pinball library on the Switch. How's that? And, and this is a real deep cut. Like I, I think I've mentioned before that I quite enjoy video pinball. I, I don't know. Maybe I haven't. But Zachariah has sat on my machine for ages uh, because it's like a, a free to start thing. You get one table with it and it's got a lot of DLC packs. So what I've been doing is essentially every time there's an eShop sale, I might just spend a fiver on, on getting a few extra tables or something. And I've got to the point now where I've pretty much filled out the whole library and it's a good game. It's a really good game. Like the, the whole package is a bit lacking in its presentation. It feels very like I've been made by two people in my bedroom sort of thing, but it stands out for a few other reasons that makes it a pretty robust package overall if you if you like playing pinball on a, on a console. Zachariah were apparently pinball ma manufacturers in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I'm not okay. a buff in this area, so this was news to me when I looked it up. <laughs> but this collection now with the DLC basically includes every machine they made in their decade or so on the market. Oh, that's nice. I like but that. But what I found more interesting is that it also includes, uh, through these different packs, recreations of some of their tables in more modern styles. So if you think about the pinball machines you might see in an arcade now, they have like snazzy dot matrix displays at the top. They've got sound and music cues. They've got big interactive bits. Like if anyone's ever seen the Adams Family table that was made in the 90s, it's got like a huge Fester's head at the top that lights up with a light bulb in its mouth. And Zachariah Pinball basically retrofits some of those kind of modern pieces into the tables that were produced in real life, but before any of this stuff was mechanically or physically possible. Mm. And it's it's just a really creative way for the developers to, to wring a bit more out of the license. They've also got another pack like going the other direction that essentially takes the, the tables that existed in real life and then demakes them and, and kind of takes them back to what they might have looked like if they were made in the 40s and 50s. Oh, wow. Kind of using a very limited palette that early pinball designers would have had because it was essentially just like a couple magnetic stoppers and that was it really. And it, and it ends up being like a really nice pinball through the ages type thing. As another little treat, I know I'm not a big handheld Switch guy, but playing this on the Switch in handheld, you can turn the machine on its side and then you get a, a greater view of the playfield as well, which is cool. That's nice. So you can you can use the touchscreen for, for kind of the flippers and pull it back for the plunger. And it's just a really good feeling way of exploring these tables in their old and new permutations. In terms of like having stuff to do as well, a pinball, I think if, if you don't know 
anything about how you play pinball, it's, it can be quite daunting to decide like, well, what am I even doing other than stopping this ball going in the hole? But every table in this has loads of individual achievements to unlock and, and play modes to explore that might tell you specific things to aim for or to shoot for and stuff like that. And all in all, if you can get past the ropey menus, it's, it's a really good pinball title for someone looking to get into the genre. At full price, the whole collection is, is probably over 100 quid, which is Fuck. very expensive. But the way I've cherry-picked bits when it's been on sale, the full game, and I'm doing this in inverted commas because I assume it will just keep getting bigger, it's probably run me a much more reasonable like 40 quid over the last year or two. And and in terms of just being like little £5 things here and there to add a few more tables, that's that's been pretty good. So, yeah, overall, it's a good one. And I haven't spent that much money, which is a good one for me. <laughs> annoyingly you've successfully enticed me (laughs) (laughs) but if you're gonna get it just it comes with a table i'm sure yeah so just have a little play see how kind of the achievement stuff works out and everything else and from that you'll know if it's like oh i might pick up a few or this isn't really my thing yeah and i think that's a much fairer way of doing it rather than saying i need everything right now (laughs) it's it's downloading now i'll let you know next week i'll let you know next week so minty yeah what is your top hundred amendment it's fun seeing uh, Paper Mario discourse pop up on social media every few weeks. Like you'll see it trending, and you think, "Oh, are they are they are they making a new game? Are they re-releasing something?" But you've just got it's, it's just people talking about the old games. People who long for the old, the old school RPG heavy games. Like, oh, we want a new Thousand Year Door. We want things that could comfortably have Mario story emblazoned on the case and the cart. And then you've got people who, for some reason, love Sticker Star and enjoy this direction the series has been taking <laughs> in that direction. Now, I used to be firmly in the former camp. Like, I've gone on record saying that I fucking hate Sticker Star with a passion. I think it's utterly devoid of anything that made the uh, the original Paper Mario games good and the papercraft mechanics added in were utterly dire. But I've mellowed out a lot in my old age and mm-hmm. I've come to appreciate that even though those early games were so wonderful and so beloved by so many, the later entries do have some really great things that they brought to the series as well, just not Sticker Star. So Paper Mario the Origami King seems to be the uh, the logical conclusion of the Paper Mario series. And I think if it's the final entry in, then it's a fine capstone. It's easy to see why Nintendo leaned into Papercraft a lot more during that, that middle part of the series. I mean, we had the Mario and Luigi games. They, they came in guns blazing and they delivered um, a far superior RPG experience, I would say. Paper Mario needed something to distinguish itself. And I think the heavy focus on stationery was the result. And then, of course, poor Alpha Dream, the Mario and Luigi developers, uh, went bust a few years ago. And I assume some benevolent creature in the Nintendo offices floated the idea of bringing back a few of those RPG elements for the Origami King. Sort of like a, a fond little farewell to Mario and Luigi. And uh, a gentle way of telling the bleating purist to shut the fuck up and enjoy something for once. There are <laughs> enough RPGs in the world that you c- you can't play them all. You'll die before you're halfway through all of them. They're massive. And they're mostly palette swaps of each other with different costumes for the omnipotent malevolence that you need to slaughter in each one. I've not played Sticker Star since I first got it, but I am cautiously optimistic that if I gave it another whirl, I'd appreciate it a lot more. Maybe not enjoy it, but just <laughs> now, now that I've I've sort of settled into to the evolution of the series and not just blindly wanting another turn-based Mario RPG, I think yeah, I'm here and I'm ready to try and appreciate it. But for now, though, 
the Origami King is a lot fresher in my mind, and so much of it absolutely whips ass that I have no qualms squeezing it in somewhere yeah. in my list. I like Mario games where Bowser is a secondary antagonist, or uh, or or even or even a reluctant protagonist. I think when he's not just uh, the grunting behemoth that awaits you at the end of Mario platformers, and there's a decent writer on staff, he's I think he's a hilarious and fairly nuanced character. And in this game, you don't fight him at all. He's been folded into a place card by the evil king, Ollie, <laughs> who wants to turn all the toads in the world into blank paper. Now, the toads are terrible characters in the Paper Mario series, <laughs> and I fully support his ideal toad-free world, but that option doesn't really come up in the game. How is the range down in Africa? Yes, it's to the day. Um, <laughs> I think at the end of the game where you're about to face off against the final boss and he says, are you sure you want to fight? I offer you one chance to join me. I think you can sort of say, I, I will join you. But then it just game it just gives you a game over screen, which I was a little <laughs> upset about. But yeah, you're off on a far-reaching adventure to remove paper streamers from Peach's Castle to defeat this King Ollie who's wrapped up Peach's castle and kidnapped her and all that sort of thing. It's standard uh, Mario RPG fare. Collect MacGuffins and defeat the evil boss at the end of the game. Make friends along the way and all the rest of it. But what the Origami King excels in though is everything else that it does to get you there. Think of the things that we know and we love in our classic RPGs. We love uh, we love, we love combats, we love, uh, we love big old bosses and we love summons as well. So the Origami King takes the idea of a turn-based combat uh, quite literally and has the combat arena as a set of discs that you turn to line up enemies, like shunt them around uh, to put them all together in in a blob, and then you can hit them all with your hammer. Uh, Oh, these ones here are flying, uh, so you can't hit them with your hammer. So just line them up into a line so that you can jump on them all. I really like it. I think it it has a cool puzzle-solving element to combat. In most games, combat can get very boring very quickly and just become a big old grindy slog. When you're facing bosses, because the boss is so big, it's there in the middle and the discs that would have enemies, uh, you are now turning to create a path where you can get, gather coins, get health, and just manoeuvre your way around to find their, their, their weak spot. It's a fun twist on a fun twist, <laughs> which... Is a fun twist. <laughs> and we'd love to see, uh, like I said, we love to see the, the big old summon creatures uh, in, our, in our RPGs, particularly when they have a sick-as-hell cutscene introducing them uh, before they come down and just turn everything into leather and cake. <laughs> Final Fantasy is a great example for it. I can probably still storyboard the cutscenes for most of the summons to, from Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy X. And the Origami King carries on that kick-ass tradition with... The Velamentals, which are four origami beasts that embody the four elements. Um, you've got a turtle, a dragon, a phoenix, and a polar bear. They're all up for grabs when you defeat them. They're, they are bosses in the story. And the cutscenes when you summon them are way more awesome than they have any right to be. Like, it's full-on <laughs> full on Megazord shit, and it's just your partner folding <laughs> some paper into a different animal. It, it, it's nuts. But I think the thing that, that has endeared... The Origami King, to me, the most is the bosses, because in in most games, uh, bosses are just big evil things, minions that have just been blown up a little, 
have a lot, little bit more health, a couple of stronger attacks. Maybe they can heal. Maybe they've got more arms or more legs, or maybe they're sort of commanding some of the uh, some of the little peons, and they're causing trouble where the where the the smaller enemies are just causing mischief. <laughs> In the Origami King. Instead of them just being, oh, it's a bigger Goomba, oh, it's two Koopa Troopers, and one of them is wearing a hat, it takes the idea of um, this world being uh, papery and artsy and crossy and just really leans into it. So you've got some bosses which are... There, there is a boss which is a stapler. There is a boss which is a hole punch. There's a boss which is a, a, a man made out of rubber bands, like a big old rubber band ball. Uh, made flesh. <laughs> a box of of colored pencils and it's not just a case of like oh if you hit this one it'll die because the rubber band ball man you know he might he might bounce you off if you try and hit him with your hammer or if you jump on him you'll probably get sent like through the ceiling and take some fall damage or whatever so you've got to look out for what their combat patterns are and how you can use their attacks to exploit them and gear them up to leave a couple of blind spots open so you can whack a weak spot. You can use the Velamentals in battle to maybe freeze them or set them on fire or create a platform if uh, the boss tries to flood the arena with paint or whatever. It's fantastic. Like, who would have thought that a tin full of coloured pencils would outside of just being completely ridiculous and enjoyable for the novelty of it. But who would have thought that that sort of thing would create just an incredibly compelling and kind of tough boss, actually? It's, it leans into the, 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 that, that puzzle-solving element that I mentioned with, the, with when you do the turns in normal combat, but it's, I think it's just incredible. There's, there's so much to be said for games that treat boss fights as these as levels in themselves like platinum games are really good for it things like bayonetta and the wonderful 101 like you, you can spend hours on these bosses they're enormous they're titanic and i think paper mario the origami king does it really well here it just it gives us just this madcap creativity to it and it's not just oh you've defeated a bigger enemy it's 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 a set piece in itself and it's marvelous it really really is I won't spoil the ending, but it's a bit of a tearjerker. Mm. So it's it has the it has the hallmarks of the uh, of the good Paper Mario games uh, writing. We love the dialogue, we love the characters, we love the journeys that they go on, the friends they make along the way. We love the uh, the pathos and the motivation of the villains. It's wonderful. It really is wonderful. And while I while I'm on the subject of uh, of things that affect you emotionally, Bowser Junior. That little shit. <laughs> I honestly thought they had killed him on screen when I first played this game. Yeah. In one of the later levels, like, something happens, and I was like, oh, no. Like, they've written him out. This is... He's, he's not going to be here anymore. He's not coming back from this thing. He's He got cut up by an enormous pair of scissors, which ended up being uh, one of the bosses. And... Unfortunately, yes, we did put him back together and he's fine now, but Oh, it's a shame. Oh, we. It was a bit of a yeah, yeah, a bit, a bit of a gut punch really. Great game. Love it a lot. Let's put it in my list. Ooh, yeah. It's going to be a straight swap with Paper Mario Color Splash. Oh, I yeah. think fair enough. Why not? I mean, Color Splash was good. It 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 was uh it embodied the promise that Paper Mario games were getting better and leaning into leaning into paper graft with a little bit more 
consideration, a little more, a little bit more deftness to it. And I think the Origami King has taken that trend and 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 really nailed it. So yeah, out you come, Color Splash. In you go, the Origami King. <laughs> I'm really glad that you uh, you warmed to it. I mean, I don't have the same relationship with the series as you do. I surprised myself that I'd got quite excited for the Origami King. And uh, a, a big reason for that was the the battle mechanic, and uh, I thought it was I hadn't seen something like that before. It looked really really fun, and uh, lo and behold, twas. Hmm. And uh, I I worried that you would it would be on the, the sticker star side of things for you because you know I did I didn't play that I didn't play Color Splash I didn't know whether or not you you know it was going to be too stationary gimmicky or if it was not going to be as RPG as you wanted so yeah I was really really thrilled that you enjoyed it as well and I uh, yeah I loved it I really really loved it. It's not going in my list, but um, no space, no space. No space. For Jonathan, play all the There's games. No down. space. There's no space. But I did think about it. A passing thought. Hmm. <laughs> so my amendment this week is is quite a big one uh, because I'm actually reappraising a whole gaming series, and it's a big series uh, as well. Oh boy! In my original top hundred. I had three Metroid games in there. Oh. I had uh, the original Metroid Prime in the number two spot, which I think is entirely justified. Uh, if it's to move anywhere, it'll only be to jiggle some other games around in my top ten, but I don't think it'll ever not be a top ten game for me. But over on the 2D Metroid front, I had both the GBA games, Metroid Fusion and Metroid Zero Mission, in my list. Metroid Fusion was at number 72, and Metroid Zero Mission was considerably higher at number 53. I got this wrong. <laughs> and the realisation I came to uh, it, ca- it came via you two uh, talking about both games talking about Metroid Fusion with you Minty really made me realise that it was quite the stone cold masterpiece and hearing about your fresh playthrough of Metroid Zero Mission Chris meant that yeah. the reality of the quality of the game in my eyes had it, it well it had been affected by critics opinions and the stupid assumption that the original is always the best and it's it's it, it was through the metroid games that i got into watching speedruns of games and stuff like that and uh, one of the subcategories of speedruns i really enjoyed watching were low percent runs of of, uh, of metroid games especially metroid prime it fascinated me to see how few things uh, you needed to get to glitch your way around and complete the game and uh, i remember there being a bit of uproar about metroid fusion because you can get through that game uh, doing a one percent run uh, and that's because <laughs> picking up items don't go towards your overall percentage uh, so it only equates to getting uh, health upgrades and missile expansions and stuff like that and there is simply one of those expansions you can't not pick up which means you can complete it one percent and not zero percent but the scorn that it got i think affected my opinion of it as well which is obviously totally ridiculous and because metroid zero mission was based on the original metroid i thought it must somehow be better than metroid fusion when in fact what metroid fusion did was modernize the series refine what was there what had been established and developed in super metroid as well and create a gaming experience that was far beyond the retreading of the original ground in zero mission like we said before about the atmosphere that was established in the game and how that fear and terror of being pursued by the sax was absolutely palpable despite it being on a a tiny low res little minute unilluminated screen metroid fusion is a better game than metroid zero mission i've said it it's happened (laughs) another game that is better than metroid zero mission is metroid samus returns the remake of the less than well played metroid 2 on the game boy 
And in some returns, Mercury Steam, the developers, obviously and rightfully take this game back to the drawing board because the game was, I mean, it was incredibly basic. It was a Game Boy game. And instead, they take everything that had been done with the series from that point onwards, taking in the speed, fluidity and precision of Super Metroid, the drama of Metroid Fusion and the incredible dynamic action of the Metroid Prime games and Federation Force. I mean, it just feels... That was a joke. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Summer's Returns just feels so brilliantly modern. It makes full use of the additional buttons that the 3DS has to give you so many more options in terms of control mechanics. You can uh, free aim your weapons, being the main addition, which gives you much tighter control over how you tackle every single enemy encounter and boss fight. Changing weapons and mechanics are just a press of a shoulder button away. It's just such an incredibly tightly designed game. And the additional depth that comes with the stereoscopic 3D screen of the 3DS is absolutely superb. Well, like we've said before that that effect really succeeds in games played on a 2D plane that give you a grander sense yeah. of the environment and an increased clarity as to your place within it, even though, you know, you're playing on a 2D plane like you have been for 30 years. But it makes, like, boss battles, which have a lot of additional camera movements and cinematics going on with them, they just look stunning. It, I mean, it's, it's such a shame that the game came so far towards the end of the life of the 3DS because so few people played it. And Mercury Steam's extraordinary effort to modernise the series wasn't, you know, really appreciated. And everybody just went back to saying, oh, when will we get a new Metroid game? Where's Metroid Prime 4? So there we go. Metroid Samus Returns. That's great, yeah. And also, Metroid Dread is better than Samus Returns by a long way. Oh. And is te- <laughs> what a roller coaster! Metroid Dread is technically the best 2D Metroid game made to date. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mercury Steam's achievements did not go unnoticed by the people that mattered, and Nintendo saw fit to bring them in to continue the series on the Switch with Metroid Dread. People's fixation was so focused on Metroid Prime 4 updates that the reveal of a new 2D Metroid game totally blindsided everyone and yeah the game didn't disappoint it got 10 out of 10 reviews across the board well I think the only way of quantifying its quality is to say and you'll have to excuse my French but it is très bien (laughs) bad that is a terrible joke That's a bad one. I've been sat on that for a few days. <laughs> Mercury Steam built on everything that they'd established in Samus Returns. It was it was obvious from the gameplay videos that were shown when it was announced that it was going to feel very similar to that game. And that was 100% good news for anyone, well, certainly for the few of us that had played Samus Returns. Only, you know, Metroid Dread was going to be realised on the slightly more advanced hardware of the Nintendo Switch, which meant crisp HD graphics, a lovely high frame rate. So all of that beautiful design, fluidity and mechanics would feel extra slick and beautifully sharp and 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 it did you know pe- people say it's often disappointing when something precisely meets your expectations because there's always a bit of you that wanted a surprise and this is the only area where metroid dread falters there isn't anything massively new in the game like all of the abilities you get uh the standard metroid fair space jump morph ball grapple beam power bombs etc there are a few newish sort of mechanics that are linked in with the game's poster bad boys, the Emmy robots. Uh, but the Emmy robots, that sort of feels like Mercury Steam trying to recapture the terror of the SAX pursuit throughout Metroid Fusion. I think there are six of the Emmy robots, maybe seven. I can't remember, actually. That's bad. Oh, well. There are six or seven. There are half a dozen or so, each more powerful than the last, and, and each using some sort of ability that you will then, you know, absorb upon beating them to use in your adventure. 
And defeating them often involves having to sneak past them and avoid them like you did with the SAX uh, before you become powerful enough to, to take them out. And they are brilliant and superb and make for incredibly tense and dramatic sections of the game. The tricky thing is, though, once you've killed the first one, which you do really early on in the game, you know that they aren't invincible. Which does mean that they're then immediately less threatening. Yeah. Even though the ones you fight later on are more powerful. It's it's like in the original Alien, when Ripley is just being pursued by one alien. You, you don't know she's going to survive. But then in Aliens, when you can just machine gun and flamethrower through droves of them, they don't seem as scary anymore. Even though logically, having more of one terrifying enemy should mean that, that it's even more terrifying. And that reflection... It makes Metroid Fusion all the more impactful. I mean, possibly that was because it was limited by the Game Boy Advance's capacity. You couldn't have 400 SAXs charging at you across a whole planet. (laughs) But then, you know, less is sometimes more. But then it, it doesn't detract from Metroid Dread's quality because the boss battles are really flipping hard. And pretty much every time I came up against a boss, I'd think that I must have found it too soon. Uh, that there were, you know, several other power-ups or weapons I needed to unlock before I could beat it. But, you know, every single time I just, I had to figure out a way of of beating it with with what I had. And it means that they are incredibly satisfying when you get the better of one, especially if you can, like, time a parry to do a whole basting of damage to it, like amid an insane little piece of cinematic acrobatics. And if the difficulty of the game isn't enough (laughs) first time round... You can just blast through it on hard mode as well, which is exactly what I did as soon as I finished my first 100% run through. (laughs) I mean, it's so rare for me to do that in this day and age of like this towering pile of games to play, casting ever longer shadows over my time. But like sometimes a game is so satisfying, so fun to play that you just can't stop playing it. It's why Binding of Isaac has about a billion hours playtime. And, you know, it's why Metroid Dread was completed 100% when something like Death's Door hasn't been. But in the shadow of Metroidvanias dominating the indie gaming marketplaces, I think that Mercury Steam's latest effort actually shows a refreshing lack of awareness of its competition. It knows that it's got a trump card in the fact that if you search for Metroidvania on any digital storefront, a game with the word Metroid in the title will appear first. <laughs> That's cheating, really, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, by definition, it's the game that will be the yardstick for all others sitting below it in that genre. I think if you hadn't played a 2D Metroid game for, like, 20 years, then Metroid Dread would seem like an enormous leap forward. But, you know, for someone like me, who got morph balls deep in Samus Returns, there is an element of safety as far as Dread is concerned. I think, you know, they didn't want to squander the opportunity that they had to, you know, launch a Metroid game on a console that literally everyone in the world had access to. It's no surprise that they might have played it a little bit safe in terms of, you know, pushing the the, the series outside of uh, what had been established. But hopefully, now that they have established themselves as a reliable, if slightly unethical pair of hands uh, to be holding the 2D Metroid franchise in. Hopefully, you know, they'll take some risks with the next instalment and create something that gives games like Ori and the Blind Forest or Hollow Knight, you know, a proper run for its money, but then complete with that fantastic Nintendo first-party polish and just just the wonderful world lore and design that is Metroid. So, where's it going in my list? 
What's getting the boot? Number one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I realised that when I was putting my first list together, I'd totally forgotten about Metroid Samus Returns. But Dread does supersede that. The easy bit to 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 start with is, is Metroid Zero Mission is 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 leaving the list. Why? But then I'm I'm in a bit of a quandary because I genuinely can't decide on whether Metroid Dread is my preferred 2D Metroid over Metroid Fusion. But for now, I'm gonna have them both in my list, and I think I'm actually gonna put them both slap bang in the middle of my list at 51 and 50. I may reach a point when I need to get rid of one of them later down the line, so there's a pin in it in both of them, but. 2D Metroid is a phenomenal thing. And now that Mercury Steam have established what a modern HD 2D Metroid game is, I, I, I cannot wait to see where they take the series next. It's it's brilliant. Who knows, if I if I revisit it again... I mean, I played it like two or three times in quick succession. It's possible that better time passes, I come back to it. Might even go higher up the list. Might not. Might go lower. Probably not. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> when I played Zero Mission, I had a really nice time. Good. And it's then in my head, I was convinced that I was somehow going to play the entirety of the 2D series before Dread came Mate, out. That wasn't only in your head. You declared that on the podcast and you have been found wanting. I know. But I mean, it was impressive that I finished the first one for me. It is. Give me a bit of credit. Yeah. You know, the way I normally approach these games, that was that was quite a big task, even though it's not a long game. But then, then I started Samus Returns. I played an hour or two. I didn't bounce off it. I just, I wasn't hooked straight away. And since then, I've tried to play it a second time and done the same thing again. Played about two hours in, started to unlock a few abilities, like beat a boss or so. And then at that point, just stopped for some reason. So I haven't given up on this series at all. And the more that you two have always talked about it, the more I'm, I want to play more of it. And I was, I was quite gutted when Dread came out, but I felt that I didn't deserve to play it <laughs> if I didn't have a bit more experience behind me. It was like I felt like a bit would be lost. And so I, I just never played it. Maybe eventually I'll get through this stack, the Metroid stack. You know, we talk about kind of a backlog of games, but I'm building up a backlog of Metroid games on their own, like a distinct pile at the moment. Let's which not is, even uh, talk about Zelda. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon that if, if you get a fresh inspiration to do so, I would just go straight in and play Metroid Fusion. Play Metroid Fusion and then get Metroid Dread. Okay. And I must say that the, the controls for Samus Returns are fiddly on the 3DS. And yeah. you will not have that problem when you play Metroid Dread on the Switch. So yeah, that's okay. that's what I would say. Well. Fusion, Dread. That's the next few months sorted. <laughs> <laughs> if you can squeeze it in in between playing, I don't know, like Wreck-It Ralph, Dodgers or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite game metroid dread is, is 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 a real joy to play isn't it it's it's so it's, it's got such a clarity to it it's it it's it's a metroid game it's a 2d metroid game and that is it yeah and it's done so incredibly well i'm more than happy to wait for a, even longer for metroid prime 4 now that i've played this i think it's yeah masterwork really really good game Chris, why don't you finish us off? What's your amendment? So a few weeks back, I said I had been replaying some of the games that I had earmarked for this addendum collection. And I said at the time that one was a VR game. And that game is called Static. Hmm. Don't... <laughs> big, big empty pause. <laughs> now, Static is an incredibly unloved game for two main reasons. One, it's a VR game, so obviously that limits its reach to however many people are going to play it. And two, it's a VR game that is exclusive to the PlayStation VR. 
ensuring that even less people heard about it or had a chance to play it. Because as much as PSVR was kind of the dominant VR platform at that time, I, I imagine the, the Oculus has overtaken it now in terms of just, you know, the number of people that have access to them. And and this game is not there. It's still a PlayStation exclusive, which is a real shame as for my money, I think it's one of the best short form VR things that I've played. And that's why it's now in contention for this list spot. Back when I got my PSVR, I was absolutely ravenous for any and all VR experiences for a good few months. And, and I found that back then, even so-so games were somehow elevated just by being in a virtual space. So I got loads out of things, you know, really simple shooting galleries like Pixel Gear is a game I really enjoyed. All the challenge sections of uh, PlayStation VR worlds where you're just shooting cans and things in the, in the back of a little bar or something. <laughs> They were all really fun. I, I enjoyed spatial puzzle games as well, like Tumble VR, where you're kind of stacking up uh, little objects oh, and trying to keep that. them below a, a line. Or Super Hypercube, which is kind of a block is flying away from you and you have to figure out how to manipulate it to get it through kind of a space. The sort of Is it Total Wipeout, that game show, where you have to bend oh, your body yeah. into to fit? It's, it's essentially that, but in, but in VR, you know, for being 3D. But none of those games really needed VR to make them enjoyable. Like the core concept was fun and VR just made it a bit more fun. But Static was one of the first titles I played where the entire conceit of the thing only works if presented in this way. So in every stage of Static, you are a sort of test subject and your hands have been jammed like saw style into some sort of puzzle box trap. Oh, I remember you talking about this now. Yeah, sorry. It's really good. It's really good. But you <laughs> you hold your, your PlayStation 4 controller in your hands and as you turn and observe the contraption kind of on the headset, that's what you're doing with your hands. You, you know, you're moving this controller about as if it is inside this box. Every button on the controller is then mapped to some oblique, obfuscated function of the device on screen. And so the first challenge in every stage is just working out which parts of the thing that you can manipulate or turn or tweak or, or do something to. And that alone, like that central mechanic was enough to pull me in straight away because the sensation of VR just sells the concept immediately. And your character is kind of restricted in their seat. You can only move your, your head and arms in game. And within seconds, you feel that same sort of simulated paralysis as well when you're holding the controller. Like there was never a time playing this game where I thought, well, if I just stand up and move about, I'll have a better look. It's it, it just, you're absolutely in that mindset as soon as you start playing. Now, the thing that makes this such a good time as well, though, is is the way you solve the puzzles is obviously with this combination of physical manipulation and kind of exploring the puzzle box itself. But also you need to have an awareness of environmental clues and markers as well. And this is a really gorgeously rendered world. Like each stage is set in a different portion of the lab as a scientist talks you dryly through the experiments. And I really loved those kind of eureka moments that come when you realise how an answer to a piece of this puzzle may come from something that you've noticed at the edge of your peripheries. And you, you suddenly think, well, actually, I, I, I could sort of lean and have a better look. And that sort of whole process of exploring and, and realising what, what you have access to is, is really something special. There's also a huge amount of environmental storytelling and world building. And it all grounds the experience even further in what feels like a very real place while you're playing it. Even at the game's end, you're not really given answers per se as to what's happened and why you're there. But as with this developer's other games, constructing your own reading the narrative is half the fun because the developer, and I don't think many people even know this, is Tarsia Studios, who did Little Nightmares and Little oh. Nightmares 2. 
And nice. I've, talk, I've talked about those games quite a lot on the podcast. First, to say that the Switch port, the first, has awful loading times. <laughs> but secondly, that they're really, really good games. You know, I, I've loved both. I'm very close to the end of the second one. Me and George have kind of had a pause because we got very spooked at one <laughs> section. And it's, it's taken all my power to go back to it. Like, I really have to psych myself up because uh, I didn't enjoy it, the little section I had to go through. But those games, for as good as they are, they exist in the permanent shadow, like I've said before, of Inside. And, you know, everything Little Nightmares does well, I see through the lens of a game that I genuinely believe does it better, which is, which is a shame because there's so much good stuff to Little Nightmares. But with Static, I don't consider it as that sort of analogue. Like, it's totally its own thing. And you could say there's kind of roots in escape rooms, I guess, you know, with mm. each stage kind of being its own sequential puzzle. It's a little bit like The Witness in places because of how you're learning the rules of the world organically and you're solving puzzles through a combination of kind of outwardly communicated instruction but also environmental exploration but the way it's all put together in this game it just feels very very unique i've not played anything else that feels like static and because it's a tarsier game it also is creepy as all fuck <laughs> like it, it really has an atmosphere to it and there's no jump scares because otherwise there's absolutely zero chance i can handle it <laughs> nothing is going to leap out at you you're never going to be attacked or pursued or anything like that but everything just feels off it's got like a feeling to the whole game and the lab itself is very sterile, but there's enough little bits of evidence strewn around to suggest that it's not a nice place. <laughs> you know, your your character is mute. You can't speak or anything like that. You're only ever spoken to by the scientist. But everything about it is just a little bit, a little bit odd. The scientist who is walking you through each experiment is always present in the room with you, but their face has a permanent kind of censored blur applied to it. And their long periods of silence sometimes means that you can become so focused on a puzzle on one side of the room that then when you turn back and see their pixelated face, it's it's an accidental spook. <laughs> You've given yourself a jump scare. And I, I never really got over that, like for the three or four hours it took me to beat it for the first time. My only criticism of this game really is is the length, honestly. And like I said, it's about three or four hours the first time you go through. I think it could easily be a few stages longer um, because I, I thoroughly enjoyed it the whole way through and I just wanted a few more puzzles to try and work my way through but in a way I think the best VR stuff is almost always the chamber piece games like it's it's tough to strike a balance between playing out a scenario to the point it becomes boring and leaving the player wanting in, in a regular flat game but I think that feeling is magnified tenfold in VR when to play at all takes an extra level of commitment yeah. from the person who's putting the headset on like we've said before, Skyrim VR, no chance. <laughs> Absolutely no chance. Whereas the hour it takes to buzz through Res Infinite, I can do an infinite number of times. I, I will continue to go back to that again and again and again. Another example, the 20 hours of horror in something like Resident Evil 7. Absolutely not. No, thank you. Not today. Not ever. But the three or four hours it takes to beat Static, that's pretty perfect. You know, it, it's still got an atmosphere. It's still a creepy thing but you're not committing so much time to it that you feel sick. <laughs> you know, you, you could do it in one sitting and still feel okay. Yeah. Looking at my list today, we're at the point where every decision now feels brutal because I've now peppered the back end of the 100 with new entries from the last few episodes of the show, but also with kind of bold statements as to why certain games need to keep their places like Bomber Raid. I have to start pulling out games that were relatively high before for reappraisal. So I'm, I'm sort of stepping back and thinking, okay, well, why did a certain game make the cut? When did I last play it? Is it something that I included because of its personal value? Or was I trying to put it in because I thought it had like industry value beyond myself? So the original Dragon Quest is getting hoiked out today. Oh, there we go. Because 
it's it's an RPG I did genuinely love. You know, when when I played it, I beat it on the NES version completely. Then straight away, I beat it on the Game Boy Color version, basically like back to back. So I, I definitely enjoyed it. But at the same time, I will probably never play the first Dragon Quest again. And I think it made the list at the time because it felt important that I had finished and enjoyed not only a JRPG, but a seminal JRPG that built the genre. Yeah. <laughs> you know, almost alone. It's it's kind of like, uh, you know, patient zero sort of thing. <laughs> and and part of me, I think, looking back, was probably me doing a bit of willy waving in a sort of like, <laughs> look at me enjoying a classic grindy game in a genre that no one thinks <laughs> I enjoy. <laughs> but I did enjoy it. I'm not making it up. But there are a million other games that have now iterated upon or used that framework of Dragon Quest. And, and are now better games. Mm. And I mean, Christ, there's what, 11 other mainline Dragon Quest games alone? Yeah. <laughs> so I think if I was going to recommend it, maybe it would be more as a curio to say, this was the beginning, you know, and suggest that people play an hour or two and then get the gist and then put it down and, and play something newer. But Static, if you have access to the PlayStation VR, I think it's vitally important that you play it because it, it stands alone as an exclusively VR title that works because of its hardware rather than merely being improved by it. So yeah, static. I'm going to stick it in the mid-70s for now. It may move, like we've said all along. Like There's, there's a lot of motion I think we're going to see as, as the weeks roll on. Yeah. But for now, it is nestled alongside bangers like Quackshot and Fancy Life. So why would it want to move? What what lovely company to sit beside. Oh, yeah, Brilliant. great. Uh, I really want to play it. You can't. All right. I was going to say... <laughs> The only time I, I might get to do it is uh, when I come and see you and I can play it on your PSVR. Yeah. But apparently, I'm not welcome. Please please do. Jesus. I mean, it's, it's basically, it's an open invitation. Anyone who wants to experience it and doesn't have access to PSVR, let me know. We'll, we'll sort out a time. We'll do it. We'll do it like, you know, there's no charge. I'll provide drinks and refreshments, but just pop round and, and experience something that really is quite special. Uh, as long as you have a negative LFT. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll be screening at the door. <laughs> Marvellous. There we go. What a collection of games. I mean, I say collection. It's just three games. First one was... Paper Mario, the Origami King. Then we had Metroid Dread. And finally... Static. There we go. Argue with that. You can do that, if you want, on all of our social media. At O3C Games. Literally, on everything. For everything else, please do check out our website, o3c.games, read the articles, share the articles, and tag things and stuff. You heard the instructions at the start. Do that. You can win some games. Loads of games. Some great games. Games. And you can get more involved with us if you really want, o3c.games slash support. You can find links there to our Patreon page, or you can just go to patreon.com slash o3cgames. And there's loads of tiers of pledging available there if you want to throw a few few little bucks our way to help us continue this 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 if you want to subscribe <laughs> then you can also uh, throw us a little uh, one-off paypal donation which we would greatly appreciate because uh, every little helps no what's that i don't know copyright we deserve it you can also reach out to us and talk to us on an individual basis i'm on twitter at jonathan dunn i am on twitter at Chaz underscore hodges i'm clement underscore boo and please boo. do join us next time when we will be amending our top 100 lists even further just just ripping it to shreds sponsor and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor 
Hardcore Gaming 101 podcast is on a mission to rank the top games of all time. I like the idea that when Bruce Wayne gets angry, he switches to the Batman voice. Why do you have such a problem making boomerang shaped like a bat? You mean like Batman? Not like Batman, just make it for me! Bruce Wayne, I can't even with this guy. It's a Herculean task, and I'd be lying if I said it hasn't taken a toll on our cognitive faculties. Most people would be happy to have a job during a global pandemic. <laughs> Dennis. Hardcore Gaming 101, twice a week, every week, right here on the HyperX Podcast Network. Come on in, take a seat. What are you having? Well, of course I've heard of Hair at the Dogcast. That's the podcast that talks about video games and beer. For all of the latest gaming headlines, craft beer reviews, retro games, modern games, series retrospectives, console studies, and on occasion, extremely hungover discussions on the lore of Kingdom Hearts, make sure to check out Hair of the Dogcast, part of the HyperX Podcast Network. The O3C Podcast is part of the HyperX Podcast Network. HyperX is our sponsor and the maker of the acclaimed Quadcast and Quadcast S microphones. Quadcast USB mics look and sound amazing and they're packed with features. With four selectable polar patterns you'll get great sound no matter what you're recording. The included shock mount and pop filter mean you won't have to shell out extra cash for a great setup. Then there's the eye-catching LED indicator and tap-to-mute sensor, so you can tap in and tap out to stop broadcast accidents. It's time for you to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast and Quadcast S.